I'd like to have you turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. As we began this particular chapter last week, it was the first day of the week, and Jesus had already risen from the dead. We spent a considerable amount of time last week talking about the evidences of the resurrection. Not only out of the Gospel of John, but as well out of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We read verse 10 last week, but we wanted to begin there this morning. In that after Peter and John had looked into the, the tomb and and realized that the Lord was not there. And the fact that his grave clothes were there, neatly wrapped, along with a face cloth nearby, brought the Apostle John to believe what Jesus had told them a number of times that he would be taken and he would be killed, crucified, he would be buried, and on the third day he would rise again from the dead. What's interesting about verse 10 is that it just simply says that the disciples went away again unto their own home. Now we'll come back to that in a moment. But Mary, speaking of Mary Magdalene, stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and the word without there means outside of the sepulcher. Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. All sorts of events, famous or infamous, triumphant or tragic, great, grand, or grievous, seem to canvas the landscape of history. But if there were one event that could be labeled as precious in history, it would have to be Jesus' first appearance. First appearance to a woman who had been saved from the depths of human depravity. A woman that Luke described as a follower of Jesus with much to be grateful for. Mary Magdalene. One who loved Jesus with the deepest of loves because of what he had done for her. Luke writes in Luke chapter 8 verses 1 and 2, And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. And in Mark's account of the resurrection, this is how he identifies her. Mark 16, verse 9, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Not just one devil, not just two devils. Seven devils. Demons. And she was eternally grateful. She loved Jesus for all that he had done for her. Let me interject something here before we go on, and that is that No Jewish writer, no Jewish writer who had any intention whatsoever to discredit the resurrection of Jesus Christ would have ever written something by beginning with Jesus appearing to a woman. It never would have happened. That is why this is significant, that he first appears to a woman. And so it was this Mary of the village of Magdala, a town on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, three miles north of the city of Tiberias. The reason for her name, Mary Magdalene, just means Mary of Magdala. That John begins his account of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 1, as we studied last time, tells us that the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. By the way, did you know that the stone was not removed to let Jesus out? It was moved so that we could look in and see he wasn't there. We know from the text that she ran with great fear 
and trepidation to Simon, Peter, and John to inform them that the body of Jesus was not in the tomb and that the Lord had been taken away to some undisclosed place. That caused the disciples themselves to hurry to the sepulcher to see for themselves that the body of the Lord was no longer there. This is what we saw last time. But, but both saw his grave clothes and face cloth empty and lying entwined as if wrapped around a body, yet the body wasn't there. And when John saw the linen clothes, he remembered the words of Jesus that he must rise again from the dead and believe. So now here in verse 10 where we left off last time, we're told that the disciples went away again unto their own home. Now that's an interesting statement that is being made here by John. Now John is, the one, is one of the apostles that was there. And he said that they went to their own home. And this could mean that they either went to their own houses or to those of their friends or even to those where they had hired lodging. But, but here's a dilemma. We should never forget this. Here, here's the dilemma here. Remember that these disciples were Galileans. They were not from Jerusalem, as it were. They were not from the area of Judah, south of Samaria, and certainly south of the northern region where the Galilee was. Peter had his home in Capernaum. <laughs> we see that in the Gospels, of course. As did James and John live in that particular area. So wherever they stayed then had, had to also be where John had taken Mary, the mother of Jesus, before Jesus died on the cross. And this also had to be a place where the disciples gathered for prayer and fellowship. It was their central hub, as it were. We would have to consider that the rented upper room where they celebrated the Passover supper and where a month and a half later they would meet again on Pentecost on the day when the Holy Spirit would come upon them as cloven tongues of fire after the resurrection. That this may be where they were. One thing we do know that in verse 19, where we'll begin next week, but in John 20, verse 19, then the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. So wherever it was, that was their central hub of meeting. It was their place of assembly, as it were, it was their church. So the disciples went to this home, somewhat convinced that Jesus had risen without actually having seen him. And of course, we could conjecture in a sense and say that they went back, uh, Peter and John uh, did, speaking about that. And John telling them, listen, do you remember what Jesus said? Do you remember that he told us that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried, that he would rise again on the third day? And how many times did he tell us? And now we come to the tomb and we look in and he's not there. So off they go. And Mary, who had originally come down toward the tomb with other women, now is by herself. And verse 11, 
where we begin today. We see that Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. The word that John uses for weeping is a very powerful word. It it means that she wept convulsively, that she wept bewailing loudly, and yet she had enough courage to look into the open, empty tomb. She had enough courage from what she saw Peter and John do when they looked in and discovered that the body of Jesus wasn't there. And she finally looked in. And I've always considered this from the standpoint of just thinking about how Mary lingered, how she lingered at the tomb. We're not given any amount of time or a time frame as to how long she was there, but it would have to be long enough to consider everything that was going through her heart and through her mind, lingering at the empty tomb of of Jesus, and her lingering there was about to revolutionize her life. Because what we're going to discover here as we read on is that she, she didn't consider that Jesus was risen. She considered him dead and that they had moved his body some, to some other place. And all she wanted was to be with the body of Jesus. So it is safe to say, and sadly I may add, that too many people rush by the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. They rush by the empty tomb, never giving any thought to its eventual and decisive meaning. Is there any meaning at all to an empty tomb? There's tremendous meaning in it. The question that Jesus would ask Mary later on, whom seekest thou, is the ultimate question for mankind. Who were we seeking? When it came time to think about our lives, our futures, our destinies. Sometimes we are so shallow in those particular pursuits. We think about only those things that are right before us. Attainable, as it were, because they're out in the open. Until we begin to consider that there was something more to this life than what we see. How many more need to seek the same truth? Because Mary sought the truth of the empty tomb. That's what she was seeking, the truth of the empty tomb. What does, this, what does seeking the truth of the empty tomb mean to life and to, and to a world and all of its corruption and need today? As believers, there's really only one answer to the question, and that is everything. What does seeking the truth of the empty tomb mean? It means everything. Even to us as believers, it means everything. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 19, he said, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. Of course, dealing with the issue of resurrection. But he goes on and he says, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. 
That is a tremendous statement that Paul is making here. If Christ be not raised, your faith is, is useless. Then whatever we're doing here, if Christ is not raised and we don't rise from the dead ourselves, then we're just spending a, a good hour and a half just waking up. Wake up, everybody. Then you go home and then that's it, you know. And if you die, you die. And if you don't, you don't. Until you die and then you die. And then you turn the light out and then that's it. He said, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. What an interesting statement that Paul makes here because he says, listen, most people will think, well, if we just die, we have no problem with sin because sin's not a problem. He said, yes, there is. With God, there's a problem. And if there's no resurrection, and if Christ be not raised, you are still in your sins and you'll be punished for it. And then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. And, and the sad thing is that so many people have that kind of a vision of, of what it means to go to church. You know, we go to church on Sunday and then we go home and then we spend the rest of the week doing whatever we do. And then we go to church again on Sunday. And then we talk and we hear things about Jesus and we hear, you know, and that he was nice. And then we go through all the seasons and then we go through all the, the you know, the events, you know, Christmas and Easter and all of these other things. But, the, but it means nothing unless we have some meaning about the empty tomb. So if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So if you, if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to linger. Linger at the empty tomb. The empty tomb of Jesus. And seek its truth. Seek its meaning. Mary has now looked into the tomb. And notice what happens in verse 12. And seeth two angels in white sitting. Now some people would say, well, she probably didn't know they were angels. John is very clear. He says she sees two angels in white. Now, if she looked in with a little lamp that they all used to carry, little clay lamps, uh, and, and that was her only light. She didn't have those things that you can buy, you know, uh, on TV nowadays, in 1999, you get two of them, and, and they're as bright as, you know, the sun. You know, and they blind you. you know, just a little light, and, you know, kind of peered in. The suggestion here is she saw two angels that were kind of sitting there in some light. Wearing white. The one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord. Please underline that phrase, my Lord. And I know not where they have laid him. Now you see, in a general sense, these angels who we know to be messengers of God, were, were sent as ministering spirits of the Lord, sent to carry out his will as it pertained to the resurrection of Jesus. In another gospel, one, one angel is, is spoken of 
and, and some would say, well, why is it one angel here and two angels there? But notice, if two angels are together, one is speaking, so he's probably pointing out, the other gospel is pointing out the one that was speaking. That's all that that is. Nothing to worry about there. But they were there to carry out God's will as it pertained to the resurrection of Jesus. They wore white as a symbol of purity. And their position at either end of the stone slab upon which the body of Jesus was laid brings to mind the cherubim that were placed upon the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat. Think about that for just a moment. Remember in Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, where it says, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, instructions from God to Moses. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half. Shall be the length thereof and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubim of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on the two ends of thereof. I think that repetition there is to say, do this and do it right. There'll be two cherubim. And most of the uh, visual illustrations that we see are always two angels facing each other. So there's something to think about the mercy seat. What, What had at one time been called the judgment seat after the resurrection is called the mercy seat. But it's called the mercy seat in the Old Testament too. In a more particular sense, these angels were sent not only to add to the spectacular significance of the resurrection, they were sent there to comfort Mary in her grief. I want you to take note of something. Take note that they had not been in the tomb when Peter and John looked into the tomb just a few minutes before. But what I find even more significant is that Mary is conversing with angels and is neither moved or comforted. I mean, you would think, Mary, why are you weeping? And her answer, because they've taken my Lord. They've taken away my Lord and I know not where they've laid him. They haven't comforted her too well, have they? But here's the thing. She was determined to find the body of Jesus. She was determined to find the body of Jesus. So her answer to their question, why weepest thou? Again, comes this this great strong statement because they have taken away my Lord. Where is he? And I know not where they've laid him. And you can simply define this as a tremendous love and devotion in Mary's heart to find Jesus. To find the one who delivered her from those seven devils, those seven demons that changed her life forever. There's a verse of scripture in Proverbs, Proverbs 8, verse 17, the chapter itself 
focuses upon the wisdom of God. And of course, wisdom is personified in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so when these words are, 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 are given, they are given as coming from the Lord himself. For it says in Proverbs 8, verse 17, I love them that love me. And those that seek me early shall find me. Well, Mary went and sought Jesus early, didn't she? After all of these things that were taking place in her presence, Mary still thought Jesus was dead. That certainly brings to mind another verse of Scripture that pertains to Mary Magdalene as well. It's Psalm 30, verse 5. Not so much the first part of the verse that says, For his anger endureth but a moment, and his favor is life. It's the second part. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And morning was about to dawn for Mary. We're told in verse 14, And when she had thus said, she turned herself back. <laughs> in other words, two angels sitting there, nice and bright and white, and she turns her back on him. Not so much in disinterest. But she saw Jesus standing. But notice, knew not that it was Jesus. Why didn't she recognize the one for whom she was so desperately searching? Well, there are a lot of answers filled with speculation after speculation. I mean... Remember, she still thought Jesus to be dead. So when you have this thought that Jesus is still dead, anybody you see can't possibly be Jesus. There's another thought that some people have, have, have kind of held on to, and that is that, that Jesus, even risen from the dead, was not uh, really kind of shining brightly in some new uh, figure or quote-unquote transfiguration. And certainly not as bright as he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, but that he was more closely looking like he was on the cross to some extent. Possibility, we don't know. Some believe that Jesus, for just a brief moment, concealed himself from her, as he would later do when walking with the disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24. Or perhaps it was still early and dark in that part of the garden. Or perhaps her eyes were more than likely blinded by her many tears of sorrow. Or perhaps it was all of those things. In any event, she didn't recognize Jesus. Listen to the exchange, though, in, in verses 15 and 16. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? He asked the same questions as the angels. Why weepest thou? And then he asked a different question. He says, Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, in other words, if you have carried him out of here, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Wow, that's tremendous devotion, isn't it? And Jesus 
saith unto her, Miriam, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. So how interesting that Jesus would ask Mary the same question as the angels. Why do you weep? And then adds the second question. Who are you seeking? By the way, Jesus didn't ask the question because he didn't know the answer. There are some people actually who, who teach that. Well, Jesus didn't know the answer, so he asked the question. Really? For three and a half years in his earthly public ministry, Jesus asked a lot of questions that he knew. He even knew the hearts of the people that he was asking. And he knew, he knew them better than they knew themselves. And he would ask these questions, you know. For what reason? Not for himself. He knew the, all the answers. He is the answer. He asked for their benefit. To learn. Asking questions is one of the great tools of teaching. And Jesus was a master teacher. <laughs> there was a little kindergarten girl going to, going to kindergarten for the first day, first day of the year. First time in school. Goes to class. And after school, mom picks her up and says, well, honey, how was, how was your first day of school? She says, I was terrible. Teacher didn't know anything. What do you mean? Well, she asked questions like, what, what is one in one? And we said, my goodness, she doesn't know? <laughs> well, that's how ridiculous it is for anybody to say that Jesus didn't know the answer. Of course he knew the answer. That's, it's ignorant to think that way, isn't it? It's even close to heresy to think that way. He asked Mary for her benefit, not his. Because her response, her response reveals what she was willing to do for her Lord's body, even if it meant doing it by herself. Tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. I, I can't see, you know, Mary Magdalene as a, as a woman that was, you know, like one of those in those women that are in WWE, you know, with all the muscles and, and, and could, could probably take two guys, you know, in, one, in two arms, you know, wherever she would want to take them. I mean, she, 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 she said, I, I will take him away. I don't, there was no one else around. She was willing to do that herself, to take the body of Jesus. She was willing at least to try. Her love and her devotion for Jesus was so strong it never crossed her mind that she might not be able to finish the task. But if, but if this gardener would just tell me where he laid my Lord, I'll, I'll do what I must. And with a word, Mary's despair was turned into a delight. 
What a blessing and encouragement to know that the Lord knows all about our sorrows, isn't it? That he knows all about our struggles and all about our trials. What others don't know, he knows. And he does, just doesn't know it in the mind, but in his heart. Willing to bear us on eagle's wings. Willing to carry us and to lift us. Willing to bear our yoke. Come unto me, Jesus said, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And the suggestion, of course, is that he bears the yoke. Because he bears us. He knew that Mary's heart was broken and that her thoughts and emotions were all confused. But instead of rebuking her, Jesus tenderly revealed himself with a word, her name. Miriam, Mary. <clears throat> it was the tone. He had spoken to her right before that. Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? But it wasn't until she heard her name. Mary. And responded to the tone of his, of his voice. I hate, to see, I hate to use such a mundane example, but you know, sometimes you go to Sam's Club and there's families that have their own whistle. <laughs> and all of a sudden you see all these people going, wow. <laughs> Known by the sound of the whistle. Jesus had a tone. That she recognized and knew immediately it was him. All Jesus had to do was speak her name. And each of them spoke one word. Jesus said, Mary. She said, Master. For, you know, for us to say anything more in a moment like this would be lacking respect. What else could be said? But Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know his voice. That's why Jesus in John chapter 10 verses 1 through 3 said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And all that Mary could say was, Raboni, my master, my teacher. Remember that she said, my Lord. Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Lord? That's personal, isn't it? 
That is really personal. With all due respect, I I, I heard the Pope one day say that, that it's dangerous to have a personal relationship with God. Or it's, it's, it's dangerous to call him a personal savior. I'm thinking, really? Yeah, it's dangerous to the world when we finally know who our Lord is. It's not dangerous to us. Every one of those disciples had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And every one of us who has come to the knowledge of Christ in our lives, we have a personal relationship with him. What's wrong with that? It was considered the highest level of teachers, Raboni, recognized by the Jews. Eventually, they had three levels. Rab, R-A-B, which was the lowest level of teacher. Then there was the rabbi, the next up, and then the highest was the Raboni. And that's what she called him, Raboni. So what happens next is, is really expected emotion, and it is expected expression. What happens next, verses 17 and 18. Because Jesus saith unto her, touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and, and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the, the Lord and, and that he had spoken these things unto her. But in verse 17, interesting that Jesus said unto her, touch me not. The way that it is expressed in, in the Greek is that she's already touching him. But it isn't about touch that matters here. Because it would seem that the moment that Mary Magdalene recognized Jesus, that she herself had flung her arms around him, whether at his knees or at his feet or at his, at, at his side or around his neck. But she flung her arms around him as if to hold him and to never let him go. And that's what Jesus is responding to. That she had taken hold of him in that way and in that manner. As someone described, she put a death grip on Jesus. It's as almost I could just see it, you know, uh, Mary, uh, <laughs> touch me not, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, all right. That's the picture here. The implication of the Lord's words is that she was clinging to him even as he was speaking. But Jesus wasn't telling her not to touch him at all. That's not what he was saying. Because again, the Greek word for touch, it's the word haptomai, which means to attach oneself. It literally means to attach oneself. Jesus was saying to Mary, don't cling to me like this. I have not yet ascended to my father. And it is important to note that Jesus did allow the other women to hold his feet. Matthew 28, verse 9, where it says, As they went uh, uh, to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. So it had to do with how Mary was clinging to him, holding him. So this was not a contradiction. By checking this demonstration of a very human affection, Jesus was telling Mary, in effect, that all relationships were to be changed. And his ascension would bring about a whole new situation. 
Jesus actually talked to the disciples, to the 11, in chapters 13 through 16. He talked to them about sending the Holy Spirit. That he was going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he would give them the Holy Spirit. Things would be changing. His followers would no longer be able to see and hear and touch him as before. A new and more permanent spiritual relationship was about to be forged. And then he said this. He said, touch me not for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father. Now listen very carefully, this is important. I ascend unto my father and your father. Why didn't Jesus just say, I ascend unto our father? Because the only time Jesus had said our father was when he was teaching them the pattern of prayer. When you pray, do it in this manner, our father. But Jesus never said to his disciples, let's go pray to our father. He said here very clearly, my father and your father my God and your God. And by the way, if Jesus ever used that term, my God, which he did, but he only did it in light of our relationship to God. Because he was God. So consider what he's saying here. I ascend unto my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. A new spiritual relationship was about to be forged. His father was to be their father. His God was to be their God. Besides, Mary would see Jesus again before his ascension. He would remain on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection and often appear, appeared to the believers to teach them spiritual truth. So Mary didn't, she needn't panic. You don't need to panic, Mary. This wasn't your last time to see me. It's not your final meeting with me. It wasn't her last and final meeting with Jesus. But that's how she clung to Jesus. So much so that he had to tell her, don't cling to me this way. I have a job for you. I have a task that you need to fulfill. She was to go tell his brethren. Oh, that's another thing. She was to go tell his brethren that he was alive and would ascend to the Father. Tell my brethren. Go to my brethren. Is there something significant here? Very much so, folks. Very much so. You see, in the course of those Chapters I mentioned, chapters 13 through 16, when Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's speaking to his disciples about everything that was going to be transpiring right after that uh, in the Garden and after the Garden and up to the, the time of his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus called his disciples servants and then he called them friends. Listen, John 13, verse 16. Now it's implied here, but it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Well, he's the Lord and they're his servants. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Now that's in chapter 13. You go to chapter 15 and notice what he says there in John 15, verse 15. Henceforth I call you not servants. <laughs> 
So notice the progression here. Henceforth I call you not servants. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. And that's what he was doing that night. I'm making all of these things known unto you. You're my friends. But it was prophetic. And it was pertinent to all saints of every generation. That he now calls them and us his brethren. Prophetic in this sense. It was prophesied by David in the psalm that speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, 22 says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. And that is David speaking prophetically as a type of Christ and speaking of his own heart of praising God. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. But then consider Hebrews chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And then he refers to Psalm 22. And again, take notice that Jesus was specific and calling God my father and your father. Because it must be stated that his relationship to the father is different from our relationship to him. We become the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. While Jesus is the eternal son of God, the second person of the triune God. And that is a distinction that must be made clear. Mary was not only to know this herself, but she was to tell the disciples. The Apostle Paul, later on in the book of Romans, would call us joint heirs with Christ. To be joint heirs with Christ, of course, implies the fact that we are his brethren. And he is our elder brother. We come back to Mary next time having gone to the disciples. But as we close here this morning, let me ask you this question. Whom seekest thou? Who are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? The one that needs to be sought is no longer on a cross. So you don't have to seek him there. The one that needs to be sought is no longer in the tomb, yet 
we should linger at the thought that he is no longer there. What we need to come to grips with is this. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. But more than that, he is living. Now you might say, well, isn't that the same? Is it? When, when you ponder the resurrection of Jesus, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, that he's waiting for the Father's encouragement to come and take us and gather us together and take us home. When, when we think about that, it, it isn't just at that level of, of waiting for him to come. It is knowing that he's here now through the power of his Holy Spirit. Because he said, I'm sending you another comforter. But that comforter speaks of the life of Jesus Christ that is now in him. He is living. We, we, we should be concentrating everything on the very fact that he is alive and he's living and even the very motivation of our lives here today. I oftentimes quote Galatians 2.20 because of this statement where, 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 where Paul said, for I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Have you ever just pondered that for a second? Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It isn't enough to just consider that Jesus died and, and was buried and, and rose again from the dead on the third day. We need to know and ponder and meditate on this thought. He's alive and he's living. And that means everything to us as believers. Listen to the words of, 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 of Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we, are, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Would we be thinking in those terms if we didn't really have a full understanding of the life of Christ now? The sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despising the shame and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. To know that Jesus is living brings us to that place where we do not have to be weary and we don't have to be faint in our minds. We have a living hope. We have a living faith. We have a living love. And his name is Jesus Christ. Amen?